This last week, one of the evenings, I came home and parked in the garage and walked up to the door and opened the door and looked inside and saw something like this. Ah! Oh, you're gonna, you're gonna die. I killed, I killed, I killed you first. I'm alive again! Oh, I'm alive again! That, that's about how it went. Thank you, gentlemen. I conveniently didn't tell them what happened next, as both children, actually all three, Alicia had one too, decided Dad was now Darth Vader. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's why I didn't tell you. (laughs) And just (laughs) tore after me, and they just didn't hold back. But it's interesting, my kids have never seen Star Wars yet. Pretty soon, Mark will will be able to watch it. But it's interesting how they they gravitate and are drawn towards some of these things, like the fighting and and the battle between good and evil. How many of you have seen Star Wars? Okay, so a few of you. (laughs) And it's amazing to me how that is an old movie, and it still has a following, and people still love it, and and we still are, they're, they're still selling merchandise, unbelievably so. So what is the draw of a movie like Star Wars? What is the draw of the lightsaber battles and the duels? And I was thinking about this and thinking through the movie. And, and the movie really is an interesting portrayal of the battle between good and evil, isn't it? And, and you have evil very clearly defined. Who, who's the evil one? The Emperor, but in Star Wars, Vader. How, how did you know he was evil? Black mask. I mean, there, there's no mistaking. It's not like, oh, he's sort of evil. No, he's evil. And who's good? Luke. I mean, yes, there's some others, and, and Han you don't really know about, and he might be, I don't know what he is. But um, Luke is the, the, the type of the good guy. And so throughout the whole movie, it's about Luke trying to rec- rescue Princess Leia, but, but bigger than that, trying to destroy the Empire. Now at the time, we thought that that was it, the Empire was done, and we didn't know that Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi and all those wonderful things. But we, we are, we're captivated by this battle between good and evil. And as I think about that, that is, that is very informative into what goes on in our souls and, and what goes on in our own battles in daily life? Because if the movie and if that battle had nothing to do with reality, would we be drawn to it? You might say, well, it's not real, Ron. <laughs> <laughs> not talking about the ships and the lightsabers and all those things. But the battle between good and evil resonates with us because it's, it's the same battle that we fight in our souls. It's the battle that started with Adam and Eve, and actually prior to that started with the fall of Satan, where God creates all things, and Satan rebels and says, I can do better. And he rebels in a prideful act. And evil, evil is born. And throughout the rest of creation and the rest of of biblical history and our history, It's about that fight. Satan thinks he's fighting God and God is allowing some things to happen until finally he squishes Satan. And just to put it simply, 
But it's that battle that occurs in our hearts. It's the battle that Adam and Eve had at the tree. And they gave in. And they gave in and and took the fruit and disobeyed God. And sin came to mankind. And so we have all inherited sin. And we have all been born with a sin nature that we are are depraved, for lack of a better word, totally depraved. And and that's part of who we are. And so inside of us, we have that we were created with a need for God and to be in relationship with God. But now we have this corrupted sin nature and the two every day are going like this. And Paul talks about that as the, the fight between our, our, our sin nature and for him as a Christian and, and allowing the Holy Spirit to control him. And it was no different when Jesus came on the scene. Because Jesus and his incarnation and his coming was the death blow to the empire. That was the beginning of the end. That was the culm- beginning of the culminating moment on the cross where victory would be won. And so it's no surprise that as we study Mark and the Gospel of Mark, that that is one of the basic themes that keeps coming back, is Jesus' incursion into Satan's realm. And so we've already seen several times that demons are cast out, and people are like, I can't believe you're able to do that. That was Jesus taking ground away from Satan taking his ground and his creation back. And the lightsabers are out. And ground is taken. And then we saw some healings. And and we we saw then the five stories with the Pharisees. And as Jesus is confronting the religious leaders for their lack of true faith in Christ, because they had now come over to to Satan's ways and they had been influenced by Satan. And the bigger picture here is the battle between God and Satan. Between righteousness and holiness and pride and sin and rebellion. It's important as we come to the passage today that we see the bigger picture of the entire work of, of the Bible, the entire work of history, but also where John is going, or Mark is going with this. And so we see these five confrontations. It's like another lightsaber battle. Five confrontations between the Pharisees and Jesus. And they keep saying, well, what about this? What about this? Why are you eating with sinners? And, and Jesus said, that's who I came to, to, to save. Why are you eating um, instead of fasting? Well, the, the groom is here. Why would the bride fast? That's ridiculous. Why are you you doing some things and helping people on the Sabbath? Don't you know that we have these strict guidelines of what you can and can't do? And he said, no, you you missed the point of the Sabbath. It's, It's about rest, but rest in me. It's about making it holy, not profane. And so and so Jesus is each of those things is a battle, and he's taking ground. But what's interesting is as we take ground from Satan. And as we do God's work, and as we fight the principalities and the powers, as we take ground, it never comes easily. Satan never just says, okay, I'm good. Just like Darth Vader with Obi-Wan didn't say, oh, okay, you're right, I'm wrong. Luke, Luke can go, you're good. Satan does not give up ground easily. 
but he keeps losing ground because he doesn't have the same power and the same strength. And so the passage today, we come to Mark chapter 3, verse 20. And we've been going, we've been a little bit out of order, so I wanted you to see the order because after those five incursions with the Pharisees, we then have recorded that crowds are coming and multitudes are coming. Some of them for the wrong reasons, some of them for the right reasons. But ministry is expanding. The work of God is expanding. And so Jesus gets off to a mountain and prays and he selects his twelve apostles. And Pastor Andrew talked to us about that a number of weeks ago. His posse. And he selects those apostles and brings them in because he is training and he is expanding ministry. Because he is expanding infiltration into the realm of Satan. That's the bigger picture. And so where we pick it up today is right after that's happened. And, and people are coming to Christ. Some are repenting, some aren't. The, the apostles are ready to go out. They're being trained. And we come to verse 20. And what we see is Satan's counterattack. Satan has, has realized what's happening. He's been losing ground. Jesus has been defeating him. And so Satan strikes back. Not to, to push the analogy too far. Just forget Star Wars now. We come to verse 20. And between verses 20 and 21, and then 22 through 30, and then back to 31, 35, we see two groups that come that their goal is to stop Jesus' ministry. Their goal is to hinder Jesus' ministry for very different reasons, but that is their goal. And, and we have a structure here, and I think I put it in your notes, the, the structure to try to understand, and this is just fun stuff. If you look at the structure, this is the, the first time that we see a sandwich structure in Mark. And, and literally what he does is he takes one story and he starts it in verse 20. And in verses 20 and 21, we see Jesus' family and their response to the expansion of his ministry. And so John, or Mark starts with the, the, the story of his family. And then in verses 22 through 30, we see the scribes come. And, and it's a delegation that is intentionally sent from Jerusalem to check out this guy that, that is doing these miraculous things and stop him. And so we see that from 22 to 30. And then from 31 to 35, he jumps back to the family. Now they've arrived. So in 20 and 21, they, they say, we're going to go seize him. They're on their way. Then you have the middle portion, which is another story. And then they arrive. Now, this wasn't done just because in timing, that's how it worked out. Because Mark probably is not being chronological here. What he's doing is intentionally bringing two stories together. And this is the first time we've seen this structure, but he's going to do that throughout the book. When he brings two stories together and puts one inside the other, he is intentionally bringing both stories together to make the same point. And it's two stories that make one point. And he's reinforcing that with the inner story. And then he comes back to the outer story. And in this case, because the outer story by itself may not have made the point he was making, but because it's paired together, it's just one of those step-on-your-toes moments. So that's what's happening in the structure here. It's very intentional and very purposeful to show that these stories are connected and they have the same theme. So let's dig into it. And we see... 
The first two halves of the stories that talk about the opposition. First thing we see in verses, let's start reading in verses 20 and 21. Then he went home, probably back to Capernaum, possibly the home of Peter again. Then he went home and, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. We briefly touched on this on Mother's Day when we were looking at community and the aspects of community and and moms in the church. But understand what's happening here is is the crowds are pressing in and and they go back and and Jesus is ministering to a degree that sometimes he even forgets to eat. Doesn't have time to put meals together. Probably the disciples aren't eating as well because now they're full bore into the ministry with him. And they're ministering and his family hears this. And his family misunderstands. At this point, they're not believing. We know in, in John chapter 7, verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. Now later that changed as we see James, a leader in the church. But, but get what's happening. His family hears all this, and he's a celebrity, and all these people are around, and they're concerned. They're concerned because Jesus is, is he's, he's gone off the deep end. Yeah, okay, I don't know how he's healing some people. He didn't do that much at home, but, but he's gone off the deep end. Now he's, now they're concerned for his health, for his, his welfare. He's not eating. He has these crowds around. And, and their thought is he's, he's loony. The, the word, like I mentioned before, was he's gone berserk or he's beside himself. And so they decide that they care enough to go stop him. And, and it says that they will go out to seize him. When they heard it, they went out to seize him, to arrest him, to forcibly bring him home. And it's the idea of taking control of someone because they are out of control. And they missed it. They missed the point of what Jesus was doing. And even if they have good intentions, they misplaced what they should do with that and what Jesus was doing in the purpose of his ministry. So rather than seeing the message, they came to the conclusion that he was deranged. But what really was happening is he was so committed to doing the will of God. So committed to doing the will of his Father and to his purpose. And his purpose was to destroy the realm of Satan. That it wasn't about his will. It wasn't about whether or not he was inconvenienced, it was about the purpose. And we see not my will right here, yet again. A couple points from this first story. The first broad point that we'll take out of the first half of both stories is we will be attacked by Satan when we are making a difference for Christ. We will be attacked by Satan when we are making a difference for Christ. And that's important to understand that just as with Christ, Satan does not give up ground easily, with us, Satan does not give up ground easily. With our hearts, with our spirits, as we try to walk with God and try to follow God, as we try to take care of sin in our lives, Satan will not give up that ground easily. As a church, as we continue to reach the community, as we continue to pursue what God would have us do here in Garden Grove, in our own communities, and in in the lives of, of people that are here, as we continue to disciple, Satan will not give up that ground easily. 
And it's amazing as we, we talk on the elder board and as I pray for the congregation, how many people and how many families in the last year have gone through just one of the most difficult years of their lives. I can't explain it. Other than when we are making a difference for Christ, Satan will attack. Satan will attack. Now that's not the end of the story. Don't, don't, don't leave now and be all depressed because the story goes somewhere. But that's the first thing that we see in the life of Christ. And in fact, in verses 20 and 21, that opposition came from unexpected sources. The opposition can come from unexpected sources. These were sources. This was his family. This is close to home. This is safe. I'm not supposed to be attacked by my family. I'm not supposed to be distracted by those I trust. By the familiar. But that's where the first opposition comes from. Well-meaning, possibly. They may have just been out to, to protect their honor as a family. But if they had their way, Jesus' ministry would have stopped. See, oftentimes Satan will use what is close to us, what is okay, what we're used to, to distract us. Because we get on guard for the big things. We get on guard for the big attacks. We'll notice if someone's coming at us with a lightsaber. But, but we may not notice the little things. And Satan will use those things to stop us from doing the work of God. He'll tempt us with the okay so we don't do the best. I, I, those of you with kids, you see this, don't you? You send them off to do something. And you come 15 minutes later, and what are they doing sometimes? Something completely different, right? Last night, Mark was sent to clean up the living room. He had, had put the couches away and everything, and we go in five or ten minutes later, and, and one piece of furniture was moved back slightly. Now, it's light furniture. He can move it. Some of you are thinking, wow, they're, they're having their... <laughs> it's, it's wicker, easy to move. He, he moved it all in the first place. And he had done one thing, because Alicia had come in, and they just started playing and tickling and wrestling and, and all this. And not that that's bad, but it distracted him from what he was supposed to be doing. And it wasn't good. It happens with six-year-olds. It happens with 44-year-olds. Because we get so distracted and so many things that can come in that can make me forget why I'm doing what I'm doing. And in this case... Jesus' ministry is expanding and his family says, we need to watch out for him. Let's go take control of the situation. He's nuts. And the opposition came from close and nearby. Sometimes circumstances can distract us. And Satan will throw all kinds of things at us that seem like coincidence. But the purpose is to distract us. Second place opposition can come from is from direct attacks. Direct attacks. Satan will actively try to stop the work of God. Sometimes he's subtle, uses indirect attacks. Sometimes it's just direct. And these are hostile sources sometimes. Sometimes it might be temptations. Temptations. 
temptations to, to sins that will discredit you, to sins that will, will hinder you from doing the work of God because now you're dealing with repentance and dealing with, with filth in our lives. And so if Satan can find a weakness and tempt us to fall in that way, he can stop the work of God temporarily, in our lives at least. Sometimes that comes through criticisms. Have you ever been at a, at a place where you are, are really stepping out for God and then someone just hammers you for it? Or maybe someone hammers you on something else in your life and just, just completely tears you apart. You're like, I was trying to walk with God. I was trying to do His work. I was trying to take a step of faith. And Satan will use that to stop us, to discourage us. Maybe it's accusations, attacks on character. Maybe we deal internally with depression and struggle with with really trusting God and seeing His joy. Those are all things that can stop the work of God. Let's read in verse 22 and see what direct attack Jesus had to deal with. It's actually 22 through 30. It's the majority of the passage as he switches gears to the middle story. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in a parable, Jesus calling to them and said to them in in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. Basically, he just said that's ridiculous. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And so we see a direct attack as these scribes come from Jerusalem, maybe 65, 75, 70 miles away, and they arrive and they're an official delegation because they're the legal experts to discredit Jesus, to stop this ministry. And so they come and they see God's work expanding and they're like, well, okay, how can we stop this? How can we stop this? And their thought is, if we can say some things that would turn people against Jesus, if we could find a way to discredit Him and and scare people off from Him, we stop His ministry. And they level two charges against Him. Scribes came down from Jerusalem in verse 22 and they were saying, and, and catch these two charges, He is possessed by Beelzebul. So the first one, and, and that is a word for Satan. It is, there's all kinds of discussion of where it comes from. It, it may be a, a reference to the Old Testament, to the god Baal, and, and that Lord, the, the Lord of, of Baal was um, Beelzebub. It may be a reference to the, um, the Jews sort of derided that at times and changed it by changing one letter to being the Lord of the Flies. And and so it could be a reference to that. But whatever it is, we know from, from Jesus' response that he understood it to be saying, you're possessed by Satan. You've been possessed. 
by the prince of demons. Second charge, and you see that with the word and there, and by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. Just slightly different, but you've been possessed and the source of your power is Satan himself. That's how you're able to cast out the demons. Notice there's no question about Jesus' power. They're not saying, well, you didn't really cast out those demons. They're giving that point. They're seeding that point. And they're saying, yes, you have power. We're not sure how you're doing it. But if we can convince people it's from Satan, we've now discredited you and your work stops. And the work of God was being opposed strenuously and willfully by the religious leaders of the time. The leaders that thought they were wise, that thought they were proud. And they leveled these two charges that could have been devastating to the ministry of Christ. See, Satan will oppose God's work. Not he might. Satan will oppose God's work. Sometimes through familiar sources, internal sources, sometimes through external attacks. But he will oppose it. Make no mistake. I was talking to a gentleman this week that doesn't go here, uh, someone that I do a little bit of work for. And, and he's, a, he's a believer, and he knows I'm a pastor. And he said, Ron, I don't understand it. I don't understand how this works. Every time I really buckle down and say, I'm going to change some th- things in my life, and I'm going to follow God, and every time I really try to work on my walk with God, everything in life falls apart. Ever felt that way? It's no good deed goes unpunished, that, that whole idea. Well, it, it's, it's not karma. It's that Satan is deliberately attacking. And he went on to say, he goes, but, but I've got to tell you, when I just sort of live life and just let loose with my tongue, let loose with my anger, and not try to work on those things, life goes pretty smoothly. Explain that to me, he said. And we had a wonderful talk. Because what he's experiencing is the battle between Satan and Christ. And that as we gain ground and as we work on our spiritual walks, we will be attacked. And so as we finish that first point, that's important to understand. That we don't get discouraged when the attacks come. Because it helps to know to be expecting it, doesn't it? It helps to know that this is the result, but also it, it can help us know that we're on the right track. Because if we're being attacked, and as a church, if the direction we're going is being attacked, then, then we, know, we know that we're making progress. One balancing point that would be a whole other sermon But as we experience things in life, we must ask ourselves the question, is this an attack from Satan or is this discipline from God? Because if we write everything off to attacks from Satan and miss the fact that God can also use circumstances as discipline and God can also use trials as discipline, then we we may miss God's discipline. And that can put us in a dangerous place. And so when we go through things, we need to ask that question to God and go to Him in prayer. Say, is this discipline or is this a result 
of me walking with you. In my experience, I tend to know that pretty quickly. Because God pretty quickly says, duh, (laughs) there's stuff in your life you need to deal with. And I often know whether or not I'm making an effort to walk with God. It's hard to be honest about that, though. Second half, second half of the stories. When we do God's work, it's His work. When we do God's work, it is His work. Well, you're using the same words there. Let me explain. God provides the means to stand firm and to move forward. It's His battle. We're soldiers, but it's His battle. So let's look at at Jesus' answer here because where He goes with this is amazing if we can get this. And in the first story, in verses 23-30, through through 30, He answers the accusations from the scribes. And He answers this with, with a three-step argument. And let's just walk through the passage starting at verse 23. And He called them to Him and He said to them in parables. And it's interesting, He initiated here. And he said, come over here for a minute. Come closer. Walk with me. Let's talk. I want to tell you a story. And he lets them have it with some, some comparisons. And he called them to him and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? And this is his first argument. His first argument is that the power can't be from Satan. And follow it what he says. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a kingdom's in civil war, the kingdom will suffer, is what he's saying. And so if it's attacking within itself, it can't make any progress outside. And so you, he, he knows that they already agree that he has legitimately cast out demons. He has legitimately making, taken ground from Satan. And he's like, okay, are you serious? You think that Satan's going to take ground away from himself? It would be sort of like saying, let's have a race and why don't you cut off my legs first? And then we'll run. That, that's how ridiculous this is. And he goes on in verse 24. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Then verse 25. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And he's not speaking structurally here. He's speaking internally. You, you all know what happens when there's conflict in the house. How much ministry happens? Not much, because you're too busy fighting and you know you have this unresolved thing. And so he's saying if a house is divided itself, it cannot stand. Now an interesting point, keep in mind the two stories are together and the outer story talks about a house divided against itself. See those connections, see those links. And Mark is very intentional about those. Verse 26, And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. And so he's saying, why would Satan commit suicide? Why would he attack himself? Because this wasn't fake, this was real. And so the first point he makes is the power can't be from Satan. Okay? And so what does that then ask the next question? Well, then who is the power from? And he's going to delay that because his second point talks about the nature of the power. And his second point, starting in, in verse um, 20, in verse 27, sorry. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder the house. 
And his second point, first point was this can't be from Satan. Second point is it must be stronger than Satan. It must be stronger than Satan. And, and the, the scribes knew there was only one force and one power that was stronger than Satan. And that was power that came from the Almighty God. And so now they're, they're stuck. Because he's already proven this can't be from Satan. And now he says, okay, if you think about it, it's got to be from God. And he's using imagery here of, of someone that is a powerful man, a strong man with lots of servants. And he's, he's built himself sort of a fortress. Sort of sound like the news a couple weeks ago. And, and he's built himself a fortress, and these guys will protect him to their death. He said, you can't rob that guy unless you come in and you take control of him and bind him. Now get this, this is, the, this is where it's really exciting. Has Jesus already cast out demons? Yes, he has already made ground into Satan's realm. What does that mean uh, that he's already done to the strong man? He has already bound the strong man. Now, now it's a little bit of the already and not yet like the kingdom of God because by coming to earth, he already is crushing Satan's realm. But that, that will be a continuous thing until glorification and until the new heaven and the new earth. But Jesus is already winning here. My power can't be from Satan. My power is greater than Satan. This isn't just a civil war like you're thinking it is in the first point, but rather, yes, Satan's realm is under attack. And this gets to the very heart and soul of why Jesus is here. The heart of Jesus' ministry mission is to confront and defeat Satan on all fronts. It culminates at the cross as he defeats his hold on believers. It's finished up in the new heaven and new earth. In church family, that is the Jesus we serve. And that is who we worship. And that is who empowers us. And that's why our mission is the same And that's why we're attacked, but that's why we have victory. Jesus is probably referring to Isaiah chapter 49, a prophecy as as Israel was taken into exile and the countries around them are, are strong and it's hopeless. There's no way to defeat them. And in Isaiah 49, verse 24 and 25, can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. And as Jesus referenced this, the scribes, they they wouldn't have missed it. They wouldn't have missed it. And he's proclaiming yet again, I am the servant savior. I am the Messiah. He knows every distraction. He knows every blow we face, every temptation we go through, every trial, every doubt, every failure, every depression. And he says, I have bound the strong man. Do my will, and I will work through you. Do my will. And so Jesus has said, the, the power, my power can't be from Satan. My power must be stronger than Satan. And then in verse 28, thus my power must be from God. And he goes into a sequence on blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that we'll read in a moment because he's saying the power must be from the Holy Spirit. There's no other choice. 
And if that's where my power comes from, your reaction to that, your response to that, your acceptance or your rejection of that will be eternally judged. And he has them. The lightsaber's in and it's, he just has them. Their own accusations turned into the gospel. Verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And he defines what that means. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. They were attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan. They missed it. They didn't recognize what God was doing. And this is an important statement. You see that truly at the beginning, or amen, some of the translations say at the beginning of verse 28. Jesus uses that when He wants to make an important point that is a critical point. And He's saying, my power is coming from the Holy Spirit. It's coming from God Almighty. And for you to reject it and to attribute it to Satan means you are deliberately rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit in me, Jesus is saying, and in your hearts. There's a lot of talk about, well, what is the unpardonable sin? Because we see whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And the word for blasphemy there means to slander or to defame, to speak irreverently or disrespectfully about And in this case, with Jesus' explanation, it is literally to slander and defame the work of the Holy Spirit. Remember, in Mark 1, verses 7 and 8, we see that one John the Baptist says, one who is coming that will baptize with the Holy Spirit. There's three different views on what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit means and what the unpardonable sin will mean. And I'll just do these really briefly. We can talk more later if you'd like. One is, is the idea that it's just a verbal assault on the Holy Spirit by a believer or an unbeliever, resulting in eternal condemnation. It means if any of us, believer or non-believer, happen to say something against the Holy Spirit, then we're done for all eternity. And, and if you go to YouTube, some of the videos I've seen, there's people mocking this, and they'll just sit there and blaspheme the Holy Spirit verbally for five minutes. And I don't recommend you watch it, because it is sick. And they're saying, well, see, God hasn't done anything to me yet. Guess I'm going to hell for all eternity. And it's the view that this is verbal assault. Second view is that it's a historic sin. It only applied to Jesus in person, the people he was talking to in person. It's not possible to do today. The problem is, is he uses words like whoever. It's recorded in all three, or the, the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The third view is that it's the heart of sin that is an unchanging rejection of the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And this is the view that I, I believe is, is referring here to. And what is the work of the Holy Spirit? In John, we see in John 16, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And so we know that the Holy Spirit is at work convicting the world. 
And what I believe the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is referring to is that point in time where the Holy Spirit convicts a person and illuminates them to truth that they cannot know on their own because they, because of our sin nature and because we are totally depraved, we cannot come to Christ on our own. But when the Holy Spirit then reveals that and reveals truth and says, this is from God, this is the gospel, and then that person willfully rejects that, that appears to be what this verse is talking about. A willful denial and rejection of the work of the Holy Spirit as evil and untrue. Denying the activity of the Spirit in our lives. Probably not a single point in time, probably a process. Because when someone has truth revealed to them and chooses not to follow it, they probably won't. And it's serious, but a couple of things. This is not talking to Christians who have the Holy Spirit inside, who have faith in Christ, and belief in Christ. But it's the idea of defiant hostility. We can go into that deeper. There's a lot more, but we are, are out of time. But we can't know if someone's committed it. It's not dealing with Christians. But don't miss the promise in that verse. Like what promise? Judgment? Now what does it say about all other sins? All other sins can be forgiven. All other sins. That means the excuse, well, I've done things that God can't forgive. Well, no, you, you haven't. Unless it's direct, willful defiance and rejection of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, when He brings saving knowledge, you haven't. Just to give you the last point, coming back to the story, and we won't spend a lot of time on 31 through 35 because we already did two weeks ago. Jesus then comes back to the outer story, and his solution is that he looks around and says, those that do the will of my Father are my brothers and sisters and mother. And so the second point there is band together with fellow soldiers who care most about doing God's work. Band together with fellow soldiers who care most about doing God's work. The first point, I don't think I actually said it, A there, recognize the work of and live by the power of the Holy Spirit. Recognize the work of and live by the power of the Holy Spirit. But in verses 31 through 35, part of Jesus' solution to the internal attacks and opposition is he brings people around him that have the same mission. That have the same mission. 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, we see no one as a soldier entangles himself with the affairs of this life. And so Jesus is taking away the distractions and focusing on, on his band of brothers. Those that share a heart desire to do the will of God, those that share a desire to follow Scripture, you can tell this by how people talk, by how they spend their time, by what's interesting to them. But I end with this, where we started. The two stories are tied together. In the middle story, we say, yeah, that's an attack from Satan. And we're on guard for that. The outer story, with family and distractions, 
Mark here through the Holy Spirit is saying, as they pull you away from the work of God, that is just as serious as the direct attacks from Satan trying to pull you away from the work of God. And that's where when, 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 when Mark writes this, when people would have read it, they would have been, whoa. Whoa. Because the two are compared. And we think of one as a whole lot worse than the other. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the direct attacks. That applies personally, applies to us as a church. The salient question is what is the Holy Spirit doing? That is the first question we ask personally. What is the work of God? That is the question we ask as a church. What is the work of God? That is the question we answer to move forward. All kinds of other concerns can distract from that. But what is the work of God? What is the Holy Spirit doing? Let's do it and see what God does. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you that you are confronting Satan. And Lord, I know that you want to confront Satan in my life and the temptations and the sins that I give into, that you want to stamp those out. Lord, I pray that I would open my heart to you, to your spirit, that I would live by your power, by your strength, and follow you in all things. I pray for our church that we would be committed to your work, to discipling people around us, to discipling each other, to reaching the world for you. May that be our commitment that surpasses all other thoughts, a passion that consumes us, that will not let us go. We are your servants. In your name, amen.